Okay, well, if you uh, will begin our message today, and we're actually going to begin again the new series today. We're going to uh, talk about, is it real? So what I would like to do this morning uh, for the message is I would like, I have two goals this morning with the message, okay? The first is, is that I would like to introduce you to the summer series and why we're doing the, the series that we are. And the second is, is I'd like to talk to you a little bit about who and what God is to start off this morning. So, some time ago, Liz and I were driving back from uh, the daycare. We were picking up James, and uh, we received a phone call on our Bluetooth car system from CRA, informing us that we had failed to pay our taxes. And then if we didn't return the phone call in the next two hours, the police would be at the door to take us to jail. How many of you have ever received that phone call? All right. Man, this is a church full of tax evaders. Again, we determined that the phone call was a scam because I am really good at paying my taxes. But not long after that, we received another phone call from CRA informing us that there was an error on our taxes. And this one was a real phone call. And so within the span of a few weeks, I got two phone calls, one real, one not. And I was forced to ask myself the question, which one is the real phone call? Perhaps you've been the victim of this phone call scheme. It's actually an email scheme. This happened, to, this happened here at Manor probably two, three months after I came, is that I started receiving phone calls from people in church claiming that they had, received, they had bought the gift cards that I had asked them. They would phone and say, Pastor Dan, I just received, I just went to the store and it picked up $200 worth of iTunes gift cards. What do you want me to do with them? And I stood there and went, I didn't tell you to get $200 worth of iTunes gift cards. Yeah, sure you did. You sent me an email. Sounded just like you with the misspelling mistakes and everything. Like, it told me to go get gift cards because you were visiting someone in the hospital and you wanted to give them an iTunes gift card to make them feel better. To which I responded, if I wanted to get gift cards, I would do it myself because it would be faster and probably cheaper for me to do it. It turned out that someone was using the church email address, impersonating me, and getting people in this church to ask and uh, and to get gift cards and to send that money and the, and the numbers to them to an anonymous account. People in this church were duped. Again, I ask you, how do you know whether or not that was really me or not? Counterfeiting has become a multi-billion dollar industry that extends all around the world. Fake jewelry, fake purses, fake paintings, and yes, even counterfeit medicines are sold as if they are the genuine articles. When they are cheap, although they look re like the authentic thing, it's not just fake items that, that I'm worried about. It's fake information. We live in a world full of fake information. And it's becoming increasingly harder to discern truth from a lie. Do I hear an amen to that? Amen. And here's what the problem with that is, is I think that when you and I live in a culture where it's hard to determine 
what is true and what is not true, the end result is that you and I feel frozen. We do nothing. And I don't just mean spiritual truth, even though that's what we're going to talk about today. I mean what you hear on the news or what you hear around time. We live in an age, friends, where I believe the most valuable skill that you and I could possess isn't knowledge or information or even education for that matter. The most valuable skill that you and I can have is to be able to discern misinformation, miseducation, and mis, uh, mis- or just misinformation from truth. We live in a time where it's very, very hard to understand. Does the vaccine really help you or will you grow three arms? When life forces you to make a choice and you're really not sure what is true, that actually places you in a position of doubt. And what is doubt? Doubt is when you are presented with one or more opposing viewpoints and you're not sure which is the correct one. And what winds up happening in your heart, in my heart, is that a feeling of uncertainty or a lack of conviction possesses our hearts. And what winds up happening is this. You have one foot in one camp and one foot in the other camp, and you feel frozen. You feel like you can't move. And that's a problem. Because when life crisis happens, when you don't have enough money, when the rain doesn't come, when the relationship issues kind of head your way, and you're not sure what's true anymore, you're not sure if this is true or that is true, you're not sure if God will provide or he won't provide, you're not sure if your spouse loves you or not, doesn't love you, you will do nothing. That's the problem of doubt. Doubt places you in a spot where you do nothing, and when nothing happens, when you are faced in a position of indecision, then what you wind up doing is you let the circumstances dictate the choices for you, and that can be bad. So for example, let's say you're in a financial crisis, and you read the words in Scripture from Jesus saying, so do not worry about what we shall eat or what we shall drink or what we shall wear. For pagans run after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all this shall be given unto you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And if you doubt that, and if you're in a place in your life where you're asking, is that real, is that true, or is that not true, then you're going to have one foot in trusting God and one foot in not trusting Him. And the problem with that is your indecisiveness will make sure that your, the, the circumstances are decide for you. And that's a problem. Okay? I love summertime, friends. Summertime, to me, does not conjure up days of gray skies and rainy, rainy days. That's my entire upbringing, my entire life in Vancouver. Summer actually conjures up long, warm days and beautiful, 
crisp late night evenings walking the dog along the path in the south of Three Hills where I can see some fireflies from time to time. And then, of course, there is my own brand of summer that I personally love, full of waves, water, and sandy beaches, which isn't something I've come to realize is around here. Summer, friends, is my favorite season. It's paradise for me, a season to relax, rejuvenate, and retrust. And when you feel frozen and when you feel doubtful, it's hard to enter any sense of peace and contentment. If you're constantly having to question what is real and what is true, anxiety will run up in your life, causing you to be frozen and indecisive in your decision-making process. And I would invite you this summer to stick around in manner as we work through our church doctrinal statement because here's what I need you to understand. As we work through, this summer we're going to spend time going through and reviewing our church doctrinal statement because every single one of the foundational beliefs in our statement is being questioned, scrutinized, and doubted within the Christian church. And I'm not just talking about the Catholic church or uh, mainstream or mainline churches. I'm talking about churches like Man, Churches that are conservative bent, that are Bible-believing, and that there is a movement right now to question every single solitary statement in our doctrinal statement. Everything from who we think God is, right down to what we believe about the Bible, right down to who we think Jesus is. It's amazing to me the kind of things that I'm hearing coming out of churches that kind of have the same flavor and convictions as manner. I'm starting to hear things like this. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. It's more your belief or your conviction that he rose from the dead. That's the real thing. Okay? I'm starting to hear things like this, that the Bible isn't really the inspired true word of God. What it is, is, is what people's perception of what God is. So then we can have and we can add to it and we can come up with all these weird things. I'm starting to hear weirder and weirder things. I, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I, I was watching this, this, this TikTok video. I'm not a TikTok person, okay? okay? I, I'm a Facebook person. I have made my grounds. Facebook is where I stand and that's it. So I'm old, okay? But I was watching this, this TikTok video of this pastor and this pastor gets up and, and, and I couldn't believe it was a pastor, right? And he gets up and he starts saying the most erroneous thing that, 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 I, that I've ever heard. And he said, he said this, because Jesus didn't have a biological father, he didn't possess the X and Y chromosome. Therefore, Jesus is genetically a female who presented as a male. Okay, you understand what I'm going through, what I'm seeing right now, is that everything that you and I take for granted, everything that you and I believe about God, the Bible, and everything is being questioned and scrutinized right now, even within the Christian church. I've said this story before, but many years ago, I think in 2010, I was doing an internship at a Mennonite Brethren Church, right? So Mennonite Brethren, mostly Baptist, you know, ah, everyone laughs at that. 
But I remember they were, they were debating something of, super, of crazy importance. They were, they were debating whether or not Jesus died and took the punishment for your sins. Okay? And so there were churches that said, no, nah, Jesus didn't do that. And there were churches that said that they were. It stemmed from some college professor in Fresno that said that Jesus dying for your sins and taking the wrath of God on himself was, a, was tantamount to child abuse. And so there was this big division in, in the Mennonite Brethren Conference. And finally someone said, can we agree to just disagree on Jesus? Later that year, they looked at the church doctrinal statement and found out, this, this, you can look this up, it's pretty crazy. There was no mention of Jesus dying on the cross for your sins in the doctrinal statement, which led to certain churches coming in and affirming, whether, uh, that, whether, uh, affirming the doctrinal statement without actually believing in Jesus Christ. Don't you find that that is really weird? That is happening in our conservative churches. And so I think it's very important that you and I take time to know and understand what exactly God's word says. And so what we're going to do this summer is we're just going to review the church doctrinal statement. And I know that sounds a little bit dry, but I promise I'll, 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 try, and, I'll try and make sure that it's practical for you. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to show you I'm going to show you what exactly the pushback is that's that's coming towards these doctrines these long held ones, and then I'm going to show you what the God's word says about it because I want you to have a summer that's peaceful and relaxful, and I know that you can have that if you just trust in God's word. So today I'm actually going to talk about the very first one and. That is God himself. Like, uh, for the rest of the message, I want to share with you what is true and certain about who God is. And I know that many of you have grown up in church and who are familiar with who you think God is, but I actually do not think that we can assume that most Christians are talking about the same thing when we talk about who God is anymore, okay? I want to quote to you from A.W. Tozer. He says this. A.W. Tozer writes that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Nothing, Tozer said, could be more important about who, who you, about you or who you are than when you answer the question, who and what is God? I mean, at the end of the day, whenever you're talking about your spirituality, we tend to think of things like our character or our forgiveness or our ability to love people. But Tozer says that the ultimate thing that will tell you about your spirituality is about how you conceive of God. And he goes on to say that, that nobody has ever risen above their own view of God. In other words, this. If your view of God is weak, then you will never rise above your own view of God's weaknesses. Why does he say that? Because the truth is, is that a lot of what we think about God actually comes more from our imagination than it does God himself. I don't know if you've ever heard atheists talk like this, but atheists like to say 
things like God didn't create us, we created God. How many of you have heard that, right? In part, they're right. I want you to, I want you to listen to what Isaiah chapter 44 Verse 37, uh, verse 17 says, and, it's, uh, and Isaiah is speaking about the foolishness of idolatry because in his day people were making idols and fashioning woods, wooded and stone in the shape of the gods and worshiping him. And Isaiah is mocking them when he says, the carpenter stretches out his li- the line, he marks it with a pencil and he shapes it with the planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in his house. He cuts down the cedars or chooses the cypress tree of an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it and then it becomes fuel for a, for a man. He, da- he takes down a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread on the on the wood. Also, he makes for himself a god, and he worships it. He makes it in an idol and forms it and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, and over half of over half he eats meat and roasts as if he is satisfied. Also, he warms himself by the same wood and says, "Ah, warm! I have a fire. I'm warm. I have a fire." And the rest of the wood, he makes a god, his idol, falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. Now there's a lot of sarcasm there, and it's rich in irony, but I think Isaiah puts his finger on the issue. When we worship idols, and by an idol, I mean any conception that we have in our own mind about who God is. When we worship an image of an idol, it's really our imagination or our creativity that we're worshiping. Okay? I think you need to hear that. What is an idol? An idol, at the core, is sort of your picture of what you think gods are or a god is. And then it's a physical representation of that. It's really something born out of your imagination. And I would submit to you today that we have been dumbing down the very nature of God. And we've been making God look more like ourselves And when we've been thinking about God as someone who is more palatable with us or more palatable in something that we could imagine. And there's some huge problems with that. But first I want to suggest to you that every single one of us, including your pastor, at times has had a version of God or maybe 10% of who I think God is that is not actually revealed by God himself, but something that that, that I've imagined God to be. In part, what I'm worshiping is my own creativity, and I think that every single one of us has, has at least done that in our lives at least once. How do I know that? Because I know that at least you, you have said or you will say at some point in your Christian life, I could never imagine a God who would blank. Have you ever said that? Hands up if you've ever said that or thought that. Okay. Do you understand what you're doing at that point? 
You are taking the God of the universe, the Almighty One, and you are subjecting Him to your own human reasoning. Okay? You're essentially saying, I wouldn't believe, and I, I don't think that God would do that because, or do or say that because I wouldn't do or say that. Okay? Isaiah 55 says this, is that God is speaking, and he says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Okay? You need to understand something, is that you and I probably at some point have had a version of God or some sort of thing that we have in our heart that says that, that we worship a God that's not in the Bible, that's more based upon our imagination. And I would challenge you this summer, if you'd really like to do this, is just try this on your side. No, just try this as a side exercise. Whenever you're going through your devotions this summer, just keep doing what you normally do, but have like a little piece of paper or journal and write down God's attributes and God's nature. And whenever you read, whenever you come past a passage in God's word that talks about who, what God's attributes or what kind of character he is, just write it down. Just write it down. And then what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to compare that to the way that you think about God and just ask the question, God, is there any view I have of you that's kind of outlined, uh, kind of not in sync with Scripture? Because we all have it. And the problem, the reason that I'm bringing that up is because if there is a part of your vision of God or your version of God, if there's any part of it that is... Uh, your own imagination and not who God revealed himself to be, then that version of God is a smaller God than the God who's depicted in the Bible. And the problem with that God is that the minute that life crisis happens, the minute that you base your, your belief on uh, who God is based upon who you like him to be rather than who what scripture says he is, that God won't come through. That God won't come through in your marriage or your crisis or your education or your relationships. And when that happens, that causes distrust, uncertainty, and I want you to be able to trust God and relax. So, with that being said, I want to I spend just the remainder of the time talking to you about who Scripture says that God is. And the, here's the problem I'm going to have. I'm going to do a poor job of this. I could spend hours and hours and hours trying to find the best way to articulate the majesty and the power of God, but the truth is, is that I, I, I'm gonna, I can't do it in less than 15 minutes. But I'm going to try, and the truth is, is I need you to understand is that the only thing that we can know about God is what God has revealed to us himself. And while it is not exhaustive, God has revealed enough about himself to us to be able to tell us who he is and that we can have a relationship with him and that he's good. So with that, I want to say this, is that here at Manor, we believe that God, <clears throat> I'm going to write, is one God. That we don't believe in many gods, we believe in one God, Eternally existing, he has always existed in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? 
God does not express himself as three separate persons at three separate times. He expresses himself as three persons at the same time. This is called the Trinity. And it's, the, it's one of the distinctive marks of Christianity. If you do not believe in the Trinity, you're more likely a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness. Okay. Deuteronomy 6.4, Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. Yeah, John 1.1 1, 1 and 1 John 5.7 are all our basis in Scripture for believing that God is one God in the person of three persons. Let me tell you a little bit else about what Scripture says about God. God is not a part of the universe. He exists independent of the universe, and He created the universe. God is not somewhat, something or something that has been created or a part of creation. And that's important because we talk about the idea of God about being omnipresent, that he's everywhere, that he's in this room, that he's in your heart. But that's a whole lot different than saying that this, might, this music stand is God. Okay? Listen to what scripture says. But will God really dwell on the earth? This comes from Saul's prayer. The heavens... Even the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this temple I built. He is set far and high above us. Scripture says this, Who can hide in the secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heaven and the earth? Jeremiah 23, 24. He is not limited by our ability to understand him. Alongside that, the teaching that God is set apart and superior to creation is the idea that God is present and active in creation. He just didn't create the universe and leave. Scripture tells us is that he is a part of, he is very much involved in the work that he created. God is not so far removed from his creation that he is not involved in it. He is also the God that is close. He is always present. He is in this room right now as we are talking about him. And I'm not talking metaphorically. I'm talking that his presence is here. He is sitting down here right now. He is with you when you go to work. He's with you in your marriage. He's with you when you're alone. He's with you when you're asleep. He is imminent in all creation. It's in him that we move and have our being. God understands and has full knowledge. He has intimate detail of everything work, how everything's worked. His understanding of the knowledge is immeasurable. He knows exactly every single detail about you, every hair on your head. Not only that, he knows every photon in every star and exactly where it is in that star and the moment that it gets ejected into space. He knows every planet. He knows every atom. His measure of wealth and knowledge would fill the heavens. He understands and holds the very genetic structures woven throughout a blade of grass. When it comes to individual human lives, God sees you and knows you totally. He knows you better than he knows yourself. And that's both scary and comforting. Amen? I want you to think about this for a minute. We, we live in the computer age. And one of the, there's this really weird book out. I, I forget the name of it, but it, it, it kind of researches social media trends uh, stuff like Google and Facebook 
and all that kind of stuff. Do you know that Google and Facebook and TikTok know you better than you know yourself? They can predict exactly what you're going to do, exactly how much time you're going to spend on this post, exactly where you're going to shop, and that's probably more information than you know about yourself. And yet God knows you more than that. And that can be scary because he knows every deep, dark secret. He knows every sin that you would take to the closet. He knows everything about you totally. And you know what's so cool? He still loves you. He loves you very much. We are completely transparent to him. And in case you're wondering, I have scripture references for all these. It would take a really long time to read them all to you. So if you're interested, I will post them in the church email later this afternoon. God knows and understands every human being more intricately than they know and understand themselves. God is not limited by time. God is above time and he exists outside of time. This means that God will never cease to exist and that he never had a beginning or he will never have an end. This does not mean that God does not work within time. It just means that he's not tied to the parameters of times. Peter tells us in his epistle that God is not slow as some understand slowness. That he is patient with us. God is all-powerful. He possesses all means and ability to exercise his will and accomplish it. Whatever God wants to do, he sets out to do. God is independent. He is totally free from any external control or a constraint. He is totally self-sufficient. He did not create us out of a need for his own existence. He did not create us because he was lonely. He did not need us to do anything. Listen to what scripture says in the Psalms. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all that it contains. I'd simply do it myself. God's power has no limits over boundaries in time and space or extent or magnitude. God's power also expresses himself through his exercise and rule over all creation. This means that God exercises a significant measure of control in the events of human history. He has rule over humans, nature, and government. And if you don't believe that, we just spent an entire series in the book of Daniel about that. This is the God of the Bible, and it's, I haven't even begun to touch on that. That's That's what God is. That's who his attribute is. But what kind of God is God? It doesn't matter if God is real, if he's all-powerful, if he isn't good. I'd like to leave you with this final thought of Scripture about the kind of God that God is. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32 says this. You might know the story as the parable of the prodigal sons. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between the two sons. Not long after that, the younger son got all he had together, set off for a distant country, 
and then squandered his wealth there on wild living. After he had spent everything he had, there was a severe famine in that, land, that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed into the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and, and went to his father. But listen to this. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and, while, and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son began his speech saying, Father, I, I've, I've sinned against you, against heaven in you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put him on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring that fattened calf and kill it. We're going to have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he is alive. He was lost and found. So they began to celebrate. Now I could go on a lot of things we could say about that story, but what it shows us about God's heart is that God never stops searching for his lost children. You see, in the story, the father was there at the end, waiting, seeking, welcoming, and celebrating. God was there at, when, he, when we hit rock bottom, when we are at our worst, when life falls apart, when our kids leave us, when we don't have any money, when we're broken, we're at our absolute worst, when we are broken beyond repair, we don't have to go very far because God is there at the end of it. God is not afraid of your brokenness. It doesn't matter what you've done. God is going to be there at the end of your mistakes, your sins, and your pain. When we have hit rock bottom, He will be there at the end of the story. Some of you have had fathers that abandoned you. God the Father is not like that. Some of you have had fathers that stole away your innocence, trampled on your virtue for their pleasure. But your Father in heaven is not like that. Here's the cool thing I want to leave you with today. A God who is there at the end of your mess, who is there standing at the end of your brokenness, is... A great God. If the person waiting at the end of your most epic failure is the person who exists outside of time, who is present in all circumstances, who is all-powerful, who knows you intimately, who is above your problems, if he holds the very genetic structure of Adam in his hand and is aware of every photon that exists, if that's the person that is waiting at the end of your mess, then you can trust that you are following a good God. You see, friends, 
I want to let you know that you're not following a God that you or I could lead around. We can't tame this deity. He's too powerful and he's too dangerous. And that's why he's the final answer of who I want God to be. And this summer, I would ask you to rediscover the wonder of a God that you cannot control. The God that is real. A God that cares for you. That is what is true and certain. And if you put your trust in Him, you don't have to live a life of doubt or uncertainty anymore. Does the church say? Amen. Amen. Let's uh, close the service with a few songs.